you know, I was recently uh, watching a version of the Christmas Carol, you know, Charles Dickens' uh, classic tale, and uh, there's plenty of different versions of it, but in my humble but correct opinion, the Muppets have the best one of them all. Uh, the story is the same most anyway, though. You know, it's the story of Ebenezer Scrooge. He's a miserly old wretch of a person, and, uh, you know, we're told darkness was cheap and Scrooge liked it. You know, Scrooge's name has become synonymous with his character and conduct in our English language as well. But you know the story, right? So uh, this, he's, he's a bad guy and Christmas Eve night, uh, he's visited by three spirits, the ghosts of Christmas past, present, and future. And as the story nears its crescendo, as it nears the climax, the ghost of Christmas future is showing Scrooge the, his, his certain death, his tombstone. And, and, and Scrooge is pleading from the pits of desperation that there must be some hope that there could be, there could be change. Because he says to the spirit, he says, why would you show me this if I was beyond all hope? And so what he says is, is really saying that the whole plot of the story, the whole Christmas carol has actually been suggesting the fact that there is hope because why show him these things? Why promise these things if there is not? And we could say the same thing is true of the Bible. That the fact that there is promises and prophecies that run throughout actually indicates to us, proves that there is hope because why say these things if there was not? This morning we were looking at the promise of Christmas. The promise. Last week we looked at the need. We all are in desperate need of a savior. And he was promised long before. And so in some ways, our job this morning is to look at the entire scope of the Old Testament and do so in about 40 minutes. So uh, buckle up. Here we go. But I want you to turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10, because what we'll do this morning is the first part, we will just kind of take a flyby and look at how this Messiah was long promised, long foretold, many years before. And then we'll spend the second part of our time together unpacking just one verse in Hebrews chapter 10. We'll take a page from the Puritans and just stare at this one verse and see all that God has to say to us through it. And this one verse is in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23. And I want you to, 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 to stay here. We'll, we'll jump around, but stay here and continue to reflect on this verse because this is the theme running throughout all of it. And it is Hebrews 10, 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. If you get nothing else this morning, get that. Cling to hope because he who promised is faithful. You know, sometimes holding fast to hope is the hardest thing we'll have to do. You think about Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. God created Adam and Eve uh, as his image bearers and he placed them in paradise where they dwelt with God in peace and union. And he said to them, you can eat of any of the trees in the garden you want, except for one. Well, there was a traitor in their midst, the serpent, Satan. And he approached Eve and he began attacking God and his word. I love the way that Dan put it last week when he said, Satan first questions the word of God, then he denies the judgment of God, and then he slanders the character of God. And with these punches in rapid succession, he hooks Eve and she sees that the fruit is desirable and so she takes and eats as does her husband, Adam. And the perfect peace that they had enjoyed was now destroyed. The paradise they dwelt in became to them a danger. And the trees that they were meant to enjoy became to them a source of hiding and shame. They take the leaves off of a tree to cover their nakedness. 
And then God comes calling. Now, God knew what had happened. This hadn't caught him by surprise, but God gives Adam and Eve a chance to explain themselves, a luxury he does not give to the serpent. And Adam, you know, begins trying to blame Eve and then blame God. And eventually the truth comes out that they had sinned and rebelled against him. And God reserves his, right, he begins pronouncing a series of consequences on them, but he reserves the harshest and first of these for the serpent, Satan. And he says there, right in the midst of Genesis chapter 3 in verse 15, God says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now, now get what's going on here. Imagine any other ruler responding like this. Here is God, the sovereign king of the universe, and his most prized creation has just rebelled against him, said, we don't want you, we don't want your rule, we can do it better without you. They have committed the highest of treason against the highest of kings. And how does God respond? He shows them grace. The sins of God's people draw out all the more grace. That's why Romans 5 says, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. This does not give us the license to keep on sinning. By no means does it do that, but, but it does give us a picture of what our God is like. See, sometimes when we believers who we trust in Jesus and we sin, we have a picture of God that, that sees him as so displeased, so stern and harsh that he just wishes he could disown us, but he can't. But that is not what God is like. Friends, the Bible tells us that the sins of God's people are met with more and more grace from him. That you will never out-sin his grace. This is astounding. But also notice that in Genesis chapter 3, God can't just say, well, that's no big deal. That wasn't that big of a, that wasn't that big of a problem. I'm going to let that slide. Because God had promised something to Adam and Eve. He had said, when you sin, you will surely die. And it is not afforded to us the luxury to pick and choose which of God's promises we want him to keep. We cannot just look at God's words and say, I want to believe those and not those. We cannot look at God's commandments and say, I want to obey those and not those. The moment we begin picking and choosing which of God's words we want to be true is the moment we may as well get rid of all of them, for we have no basis of hope to stand on. No, God says, you will surely die, and his word always comes to pass. And so Adam and Eve would surely die. Sin leads to death. It is as certain as any of God's words and any of his promises. And yet there's hope. There's hope. Like Scrooge when he's looking at his tombstone saying there must be hope. Adam and Eve are looking at their impending certain deaths and God says there is hope for you. Look to the one who is to come, the descendant of the woman, the serpent crusher. He will be the one to set you free and to make these things right. And this will not come because God ignores their sin, but because he deals with it. So he said, well, when's he going to come? When is the serpent crusher going to arrive? I think one of the things that we often lose sight of when we read our Bibles is that you can, you can flip one page and sometimes span hundreds of years. We lose all sense of time. We lose the fact that they were waiting and waiting and waiting and longing and hoping and wondering. I think Jen Wilkin is right when she says that it's likely that Adam and Eve and the, the early figures in Genesis in particular were expecting this Messiah to come immediately. You can imagine Adam and Eve holding Cain and Abel in their arms and thinking, oh, here he is, the one who's going to set things right. Here is the serpent crusher who has come to deal with our sin. And yet what we see very quickly is that Abel is killed and Cain is his killer. There must still be another to come. What about Noah? 
You jump forward a few chapters in Genesis and we see Noah lived in a time that was uh, pretty messed up. You think our time is, is, is rough. Look at Genesis chapter six. And so God says, you know what? His word always comes to pass. The wages of sin is always death. And so he brings death upon mankind and he chooses Noah and his family. And he reiterates the covenant that he had made with Adam and Eve with Noah. And you think, well, surely now things are gonna be better. And almost immediately after that, we are told about Noah's sin. So a good man like Noah is not enough to save us. So then along comes Abraham. He is one of the most significant figures in the history of the world. He is still exemplary to many today. And God shows up to Abraham and says, Abraham, I'm gonna choose you and from you is gonna come my people and my descendants, both physical and spiritual. You're gonna come from many people and God promises to Abraham and his wife, Sarah, that though you are too old to conceive a child, you will have a son. Abraham was not the rescuer they were waiting for, but you think, uh, think about the parallel here just for a moment with the Christmas story. Because the Christmas story doesn't begin actually with the angel's declaration to Mary, but actually the angel's declaration to a man named Zechariah. And the angel shows up, Zechariah and his wife are faithful followers of God, and yet they are too old to have any children. And the angel shows up and says, you will have a son. And the, the Jewish reader would surely pick up on it and say, hey, what happened with Abraham and Sarah here is happening again. There is another child of the promise that is coming. And with Abraham and Sarah, their son's name was Isaac, and he is the child of promise. And you think, well, he then might be the one to set things right, but he is not. Though he is a child of promise, he is not the child of promise they were waiting for. So what about his son, Jacob? Well, certainly not him. You read about that in Genesis. Well, what about one of Jacob's sons, the 12 sons of Israel? Of them, Joseph would be the leading candidate. He was a, a, one of the greatest men to ever walk the earth, but it was not Joseph. Although, again, reflect for a moment on the Christmas story that there was another man named Joseph whose father's name was also named Jacob, who was the father of Jesus. And at both Jesus' birth and his death, he was... In his burial, he was surrounded by a man named Joseph, perhaps worth pondering. But it was not Joseph who is the Messiah and Redeemer of God's people. But because of God's providential leading in Joseph's life, Israel was in Egypt. And this was for their preservation, but eventually Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, grew uh, fearful and uh, intimidated by them, and so he enslaved them. And Israel, God's people, cried out to him, longing to be rescued. And so God hears their cries and raises up for them a rescuer. And you think, well, here we go. And this rescuer, even though Pharaoh ordered the death of many baby boys, this rescuer escaped out through it. Just like many years later, as Herod orders the death of many baby boys, Jesus escaped through it. This rescuer, though, his name was Moses. And God raises him up and through Moses, God leads his people out of slavery in Egypt and, and, and he brings them to Sinai where he gives them the law. And Moses is this great man, a great leader, a great mediator between God and his people. And you think, here we go, right? Wrong. Moses, was, Moses sinned and in fact could not enter the promised land because of his sin. But he tells the people of Israel when he reiterates the law to them in Deuteronomy, he says, the Lord will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, to him you shall listen. Moses is telling them, there's coming another prophet like me. He's gonna be greater than me. Listen to him. Moses is pointing toward another. And you say, when's he gonna arrive? Well, then comes Joshua and he's got in his favor a great name. And he also leads the people into the promised land and he is a mighty warrior, but we realize that wars not make one great. And Joshua is not the promised rescuer. Neither are the judges 
who come up and to varying degrees they judge and represent and rule Israel. But though they could judge Israel, they could not stand before the judgment of a holy God and live. Still another was needed. And so Israel says, well, give us a king then. And God gives them a king to their own liking. His name was Saul, and it was a disaster. And so then God gives them another king who was after God's liking. His name was David. And he was the greatest of all of Israel's kings. He was a man who ruled with justice and faithfulness. He sought the Lord and is described in the Bible as a man after God's own heart. But we also know that David sinned greatly, especially as we know with Bathsheba and her husband. So David is not the rescuer, but one in need of rescue. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, before any of that even happens, God makes a covenant with David. And God says, I will raise up one after you. And the most immediate fulfillment of that is Solomon. But God is looking towards someone with whom he will have a particular father-son relationship and whose throne will endure forever. That's who they're waiting for. And so the picture becomes clearer and clearer as we walk through that they're looking for a serpent-crushing prophetic savior king. The one who would be the representative for them better than Adam was, the one who would be the prophet greater than Moses was, and the one who would be the king greater than David was. And yet I bet this promise never looked less likely than in the years ahead. Because Israel was fractured, split into a northern and southern kingdom, and eventually the Babylonians came in, and there was captivity and exile, and waiting and wondering and longing. Yet in the meantime, God continued to give hope. Consider what some of the prophets said. Isaiah chapter 7, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel, which we know means God with us. Isaiah chapter 9, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness on them has light shone. A few verses later, for to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it, with justice and with righteousness, from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. They're looking for the king to rule the throne of David. You think, well, how does this then fit in with the prophecy in Isaiah 53? He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Remember, in the Garden of Eden, God didn't say, well, sin's no big deal. God says, I will deal with it. And now we begin seeing how that will play out. That we see that the, the way God will deal with sin is by the Messiah bearing the sins of his people. That the specific sins of specific people are placed on a specific person who is the serpent-crushing seed of the woman, the long-awaited Messiah. Which is why the angel could tell Joseph that you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save their people, his people from their sins. And this is how it would happen. And yet in the meantime, they were waiting. So one of the hardest things we have to do is wait. It's a time that tests and tries us like few other things do. 
I'm not a particularly patient person. I don't know about you. Um, you know, when I'm hungry and I'm driving by a restaurant and I see the drive-through lines a little backed up, it's amazing how quickly I forget that I'm hungry. And uh, when I am going to read an article online and I click on it and it doesn't load within a few seconds, it's amazing how I didn't really want to read that in the first place. This just past, the past week, I uh, ordered something from Amazon. It was a book, shocker. And uh, I, uh, it, was, it said it'll arrive in a week. And I said, wait, are you kidding me? It's Amazon Prime, two days, a week. Uh, and I was clicking around and getting frustrated that my book would arrive in a week when I'm not even going to read it for a few months probably, uh, for, if I'm honest with myself. And so that's a span of seconds to a week. And imagine waiting for a lifetime, hundreds of years, and waiting and waiting, and waiting, and waiting, and waiting, with longing, and expectation, and hope. Because God continued to promise to them, but there came a time where there was 400 years where it was silence, where they had heard the promises of God, and then they heard nothing, and the silence of God is deafening. There's a song that begins like this, it's enough to drive a man crazy, it'll break a man's faith, it's enough to make him wonder if he's ever been sane when he's bleating for comfort from my staff and thy rod and the heaven's only answer is the silence of God. Maybe you've been there or maybe you're there today where you're wondering, where is God in this? When you're walking through the struggle and life is just brutal and the losses are tearing your heart apart, nothing seems to be going right and you wonder, where is God in this? the dark night of the soul where you wonder, has God abandoned me? Has he forgotten his promises? Is he still with us today? This Christmas season, we reflect on where the Israelites were as they waited. They had heard for centuries that God would send his Messiah, the serpent crusher, and they were waiting and had not yet seen the fulfillment of it. And this can be uh, one of the most discouraging, disheartening times of life for the soul. I remember reading an account of, uh, you know, Peyton Manning was at the height of his game in the NFL, and he had to undergo several neck surgeries that threatened his career. And uh, here he was, the man who was the most valuable athlete in our country's most valuable sport. And uh, he, after the surgery, you know, he had made all this money and, and won all these awards based on his throwing arm. And after surgery, he wakes up in bed and he can't even push himself up in bed with his arm. And the doctor tells him, well, any time now the nerves will start firing again and come back. And he's waiting and waiting. And uh, he, he talked about, you know, you go to bed at night and you think tomorrow it's all going to come back. And then you wake up and nothing's changed. And day after day walking through that, and some of you know exactly what I'm talking about, day after day thinking, maybe now it's going to be when it changes and nothing does. And you say, how do we cling to hope even then? Generation comes and generation goes, each of them tasting the bitterness of death, which is an ever-present reminder of the curse, yet also could serve as an ever-present reminder that God had promised to do something about it. Come, thou long-expected Jesus. And after 400 years of silence, God speaks. 
the last words of Malachi chapter four, the very last words of the whole Old Testament. Look this week at that. You, you flip a page in your Bible from Malachi four to Matthew one. The very last words of Malachi four, God says, I'm gonna send a prophet like Elijah and he is going to make ready the, the way for the great and awesome day of the Lord. And Matthew chapter one, the first words of God that we hear are declared to the angel, or by the angel to Zechariah and he says, that day has come. Here is the prophet like Elijah, John the Baptist and the great and awesome day of the Lord is coming. God's promises are now beginning to be fulfilled. The waiting is coming to fruition. And that's why six months later, then the angel declares to Mary, do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. This is the Davidic king they have been waiting for. And when Matthew tells us of the angel declaring these things to Joseph, Matthew says, all of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophets. God's word is coming to pass. And so Mary, though, has to wait some more give or take nine months of waiting. She goes and visits Elizabeth in this time, but this is a different kind of waiting, is it not? Because now she could clearly see the beginning of God's promises coming to pass, as clearly as we can see the evidence of a woman pregnant with child. So even though the hope was not fully realized and they were still waiting, this time the waiting was different. They had a confident hope because the fulfillment had already begun and they could see it clearly. And in some ways, friends, that's where you and I are at today as well. We can see clearly the beginning of the fulfillment that we have seen Christ and yet we are awaiting his return and so we still wait, but this time we wait with confident, expectant hope. And so the time comes for Mary to give birth. And uh, you know how the story goes. Caesar Augustus issues a decree of the entire Roman world that a census should be taken. And so Joseph has to take Mary and their unborn child to Bethlehem. And it's while they're in Bethlehem that the baby Jesus is born. And Matthew tells us that this happened in accordance with what was written by the prophet that he would be born in Bethlehem. Make no mistake, it never just so happens with God. On a human level, it was the decree of Caesar Augustus that led to Mary and Joseph being in Bethlehem. But behind it all was the providential purposes of a good and sovereign God who governs the universe. Proverbs tells us the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. If God were not working sovereignly to bring about what he had promised to fruition, there would be no hope that, we, that any of them would come true. But God sees to it that they will. And Matthew goes on to great lengths. Sometime this week, read the first two chapters of Matthew and just note in your Bibles the times where he talks about this being a fulfillment of what was promised. Matthew continues to tell us this all happens according to the words, the Lord's word. So for example, when Joseph takes Mary and Jesus to Egypt. This was in fulfillment of prophecy. When Herod killed the baby boys, this was in fulfillment of prophecy. When Joseph, Mary, and Jesus settled in Nazareth, this was in fulfillment of prophecy. He is telling us Jesus Christ is the son of promise. He is the child we've been waiting for. Christmas is, among other things, the story of God keeping his word and proving himself to be faithful in Christ. Which is why the author of Hebrews can tell us, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. In the context here in Hebrews chapter 10, there are three exhortations to let us. They're all around faith, hope, and love. The first is let us draw near in faith. The second is let us hold fast in hope. And the third is let us stir one another up in love. And we'll take that middle one 
we want to unpack and I want to make four observations to you from this verse about how the faithfulness of God that we've just seen demonstrated throughout the whole Old Testament in the story of Christmas, and we've just taken a flyby version of it, how it is that faithfulness that enables you and I, even today, to live with hope. And we will do so by actually walking through the verse backwards. You say, that's odd, but here's the logic of the verse, right? It starts with saying, do this because of this, because this is true. And so what we're going to do is we're going to take that, that foundation of it all. What's the bottom layer? And we're going to start with that and work our way backward to understand the author's logic here. And the first step is we see that our God is faithful. God is faithful. This is the foundation of any and all hope. See, we all want hope in our lives. I don't ask that as a question. I state that as a fact because I know it to be true. All of us want hope. Hopelessness is maybe the bleakest of all human conditions. That's why when you read stories and you watch movies, you see that actually the hero losing a fight is not the end of the world. The way the villain often wants to win is rob them of their hope. That's how we're going to defeat them. Hopelessness is the bleakest of all spots. Christmas is a time where we talk about hope a lot, but all of us, if we're honest with ourselves, come to quickly find out that even the best things in this world cannot sustain our hope, at least not for long. According to the author of Hebrews, if you do not know the God who is perfectly faithful, then you will never live with hope. As Jen Wilkin has said, one of the lies that Christians are being told today is they can love a God whom they don't know. And I will add to that that one of the lies Christians are being told is they can have the hope of the gospel without actually knowing the God of the gospel. But the only basis for any Christian hope is an ever-increasing, ever-deepening way, knowing the character of the God who is faithful, who does not change, and who always keeps his word. This is the only basis for any of our hope. There is no other place where we can rest. All other ground truly is sinking sand. Everything in our lives is because of God's faithfulness, not because of ours. You think about Israel in the Old Testament. Think about what happened if, if the promises depended upon them. Well, the Messiah never would have come. Because the story of scripture is the same really as the story of our lives as well. That we keep on rebelling, that we keep on sinning, that we keep on committing treason against God. And you know what God does? He keeps on being faithful. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Do you notice the astounding part of that statement is this? When, when we see someone else's sin, we turn and run the other way. Do you know what God does when he sees our sin? This is the mystery and wonder of Christmas, of the incarnation, that when God sees our sin, he draws near in Christ because he says, I'm going to deal with that sin. If there is one millisecond for all of eternity where God has ceased to keep his word, then we have no hope that any of it will come true. But the gospel is the good news that the God who set his sights on you in love before he even created the world will not stop loving you now because of your sin, but will bring you to himself and cleanse you in the righteousness of Christ, making you new, and that this God will continue to love you forever and ever and ever. And the reason for that is because his love for you has never rested upon your efforts or your merits or your obedience in the first place, but upon his faithfulness and love. That is the hope of the gospel. So in other words, let me ask it like this. Why do you know you will wake up a Christian tomorrow morning? Have you ever considered that question? Why will you wake up a Christian? What gives you the hope and confidence that that will happen? If your answer begins with, because I, you've already gone wrong. Because I know him, I follow him, I obey him, I'm trying to please him. No, no, no. Friends, the reason you can have confidence that you will wake up a Christian tomorrow is because he is faithful. 
because he will not let you go. Because he who began a good work and you will see it through to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. Because he who sent his son for you will certainly not let you go now. That's the logic of Romans 8 when he says, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? God's giving of his son, Jesus Christ, is the definitive proof that God will never let us go, that his faithfulness endures forever and ever throughout all generations because our God is unchanging. He is the same yesterday, today, and he will be the same forevermore. He will never fail in a single thing he has said, and that is the basis for all of our hope. Through many dangerous toils and snares, I have already come. His grace has brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. This is our hope. The Lord has promised good to me. His word my hope secures. He will my shield and portion be as long as life endures. And so because God's faithfulness never wavers, then neither should our hope. Neither should our hope. That's the logic here in Romans, uh, Romans, Hebrews 10, 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. Here's why the author says it like this. Our God never changes, which means his faithfulness never changes, which means our hope need never change. But this is only possible insofar as the basis for your hope rests in God and not yourself. Friend, if you are here this morning and your hope rests in your efforts, then you do have reason to worry. If your right standing with God is based on something in you, it's based on your efforts, it's based on your good deeds, it's based on you coming to church, or even based on a hope that, well, I know God said that, but on the last day when he judges, he will kind of change his mind. If your hope is based in any of those things, it is, uh, it is no solid ground and you have reason to fear but if your hope rests on the unchanging grace, mercy, love, and faithfulness of an unchanging God, you need never waver. That's why the songwriter can say, when darkness hides his lovely face, I rest on his unchanging grace. The rest and hope of the believer is that even when God's smiling face is hidden by the dark clouds of life, God is the same. We call this the immutability of God, that he does not change. And if you think the immutability of God is merely a theological concept reserved for the academic world, think again. The author of Hebrews tells us that the only reason we can live with hope is because we know the God who never changes. Uh, one of my uh, favorite uh, children's books, um, it's, it's, it's incredibly profound. It has shaped the way that I uh, think about some of these things, and it's called The Moon is Always Round. Some of you who are following along with our Advent reading have already heard me uh, talk about this, and I could not uh, recommend the book highly enough, but I will say that if you read it, be warned, because it is deeply moving. And it's the story of a, a family. So the, the author is writing it. It's, it's their real-life account of his family, and it's uh, the father and mother and their little their little boy, and they're expecting a baby girl on the way. And so as they're preparing for her arrival and birth, the, the little boy is fascinated with the moon. So every night he goes and, and looks out the window and looks up at the moon. And, you know, you and I know that the moon looks different depending on the night. Sometimes it's a little crescent moon where you see a little sliver of it. Sometimes it's a half moon, sometimes a full moon, and everywhere in between. So every night they're looking at the moon and uh, they're observing what it looks like. And the father asks his son, he says, well, what shape is the moon? And the son says, the moon is always round. And um, uh, the baby girl dies in the womb and is stillborn, and uh, the family is grieving. 
and the, the, the little boy is asking a lot of questions. And he says, Dad, why did Jesus decide to take her home? And he says, I don't know. And at her funeral, uh, the dad is preaching her funeral, and he, the little boy is sitting in the front row, and he says, he says uh, what shape is the moon? And his son says, the moon is always round. And he says, and what does that tell us? He says, that God is always good. See, there are times where we look up at the sky at night, and we see the moon, and we see but a little sliver of it, but that has not changed the shape of the moon. And there are times in life where the dark clouds and the storming nights of, of, of this life cause us to see but a little slimmer, slim, a slim glimmer of God's goodness. But that has not changed the fact that he is good. And so in the everyday struggles of life, it is a fight to, to cling to the hope that we know that our God does not change, therefore he is always good toward me, even when I cannot see how it works out in this situation here. See, there were times where Israel, I'm sure, couldn't see it either, wondering if God would keep his word. And if the people of Israel were to anchor their hope in their present day circumstances, in their here and now, they would quickly lose all hope, just like you and I would today. If we anchored our hope in the here and now and the every day of life, we will quickly lose all of our hope. But the Christian casts their hope into eternity, into the character of God. The anchor of our hope is there. And if that is the case, then when the struggles and storms and trials of life come, it will not waver because our God is faithful. And so our confession must lead to this hope, real tangibly, real practically. Our confession must lead to hope. That's what we see here in Hebrews chapter 10. Let us hold fast the confession, what, of our hope. We've been assuming, but maybe we shouldn't assume. Our confession must lead to hope. Our confession here is the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we profess him as Lord and Savior. And if our confession of faith in Christ does not actively lead to tangible, evident hope in our lives, we need to be reminded of the truth that we confess. That's why Nathan Wells' message to us a few weeks ago was so important, because oftentimes we think that the gospel is just for the unbeliever, but it's not. That all Christian growth is a growing deeper into the glories and wonders and joys of the gospel. And so we need to preach the gospel to ourselves and to one another and remind ourselves of these things. Because the gospel, our confession of faith, must lead to a hope in our lives. And so I ask church, when people in Ashland look at us, do they see us as people with hope? Where do they see our hope lies? It's not easy, it's easy to see there's not a whole lot of hope in the world right now. Hopelessness sells, and the reason why is because it thrives on fear and suspicion and conspiracy. But those who claim Christ had better be the most hopeful people that those around us ever meet. Now, in saying this, some, some of you will come and say, well, Josh, don't you realize how hard things are? Don't you realize how rough it's been? In some cases, yes. In other cases, I can only imagine what you were walking through. But listen, the last few years in particular have been rough for all of us. And yet, the testimony of Scripture is clear that sorrow and grief are not opposed to hope. Throughout the Old Testament, there was hope through the midst of grievous sins, and yet hope persevered. The birth of Jesus was met with painful childbearing thanks to the fall, and it led to many baby boys being murdered, and yet hope perseveres. 
This boy Jesus would grow up to be brutally murdered on a cross. He was despised and rejected. He was shamed and scorned. He was mutilated and mocked. He was sinless, yet bearing the sins of his people. And he bore them unto death. And yet hope perseveres. Hope perseveres because that man Jesus triumphed over the grave. He resurrected back to life and lives and reigns and rules today. And so even today we live amidst the pains and bitterness of a fallen sinful world. We see that evident in our hearts daily and we see that evident in the lives of those around us daily and yet hope perseveres. The testimony of scripture bears witness to the fact that sorrow and hope are not antithetical but actually can go together which is why Paul tells us that Christians are to be ones who grieve with hope. There's a hope that is anchored amidst the circumstances of life, whatever they might be. In the joyful highs that we celebrate, there is a hope that is not dependent upon these circumstances, but that is anchored in the unchanging character and promises of a good and faithful God. And in the sorrowful lows that we mourn, there is a hope that is not dependent on these circumstances, but is anchored in the unchanging character and promises of a good and faithful God. And so when people look at us, do they see that hope in our lives? Where do they see it resting? Is it in Washington? Where is it? I encourage you, someone today that you know, ask them. You know and trust them and they've seen your life and and you are ready to listen. Ask them, when you look at my life, where do you see that my hope rests? Because the hope of the Christian is something that the circumstances of this world can never touch and can never snuff out. We confess Jesus as the Christ, and this is the hope of our souls. And so if we lose this hope, we must return all the more to the confession that we first proclaimed of Jesus as the Messiah. We must confess it to ourselves daily and to one another as a church. And all of this then should lead to us holding fast. Should lead to us holding fast. This is how we are able to withstand in our day and age. The author of Hebrews says in this magnificent verse, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. What we are called to do is to hold fast. In some ways, the Christmas story, I think, shows us what this could look like. We've already mentioned two uh, different prophecies of miraculous births, one of them to Mary, one of them to Zechariah. And the angel shows up and says, hey, this, this birth is going to happen even though biologically it makes no sense. And both of them say, well, how can this be? And yet the responses to those questions are drastically different. Zechariah is rendered mute for his unbelief and Mary is praised for her faith. Which in other words means there is a kind of faith that can still wonder how God will do these things without distrusting that he actually will. Zechariah seemingly thought, there's no way this can happen. I don't believe it. And Mary seemingly thought, I don't know how it's going to happen, but I trust God that it will. Even still today, there are people in both of those situations, but we realize that the Christian is one, it doesn't mean that we never have doubts, it doesn't mean that we never wonder, it doesn't mean that we never have questions, but it means that amidst all of that, we trust. God, I don't know how you're going to do this. It doesn't make sense to me. I, I don't see it. God, I don't know how you're good in this time. I don't know how you're going to be faithful. I don't know how you're going to do it. But God, I believe that you will. I know you can see it a lot more clearly than I can. And so, Father, I don't, I don't see a whole lot of it, but I trust you. I believe. Help my unbelief. See, Mary did not know everything, but to answer the question of the song, she did know some things. She did not know fully who this baby was or what he had come to do or how it would come to pass, but she knew enough. She 
she knew that this was the promised Messiah, the one who had saved his people from their sins, the hope of the ages. And so she acted on what she did know, trusting that God would bring it to pass, which is a posture for you and I to emulate as well. We don't know everything. We see a lot more clearly than Mary did. We live on this side of the cross, this side of the resurrection. We see with a lot more clarity the hope that God has brought through his word. But we don't know everything. We sometimes wonder, what is God up to in my life here? How will this work out? I don't see it. I don't see an answer here. And all of us at some level are waiting for his return. And we see the sin and we, we see the brokenness of the world and we are longing, come Lord Jesus, come. And all of us to some regard are waiting. And yet as we wait, we say to this I hold, my hope is only Jesus. All the glory evermore to him. So we like Mary cling to faith in what we do know. And it is that Christmas is the fulfillment of promises culminating in the birth of Jesus the Christ, who is the greater Adam, who is the serpent crusher, who is the seed of the woman, who is the prophet greater than Moses, who is the king greater than David, who is the one foretold by the prophets in this message that he has come and he has dealt with our sins at the cross and has brought us to himself and that we still walk by faith now. We, we, we see more clearly than they in the Old Testament ever did. And so we today can do what the author of Hebrews calls us to do, which is hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful let's pray father we praise you and thank you for your faithfulness that you have shown time and time again in our lives i know all of us can think i'm sure of times where we have seen you work in powerful ways and answer prayers and and show up and father those things bolster our hope and confidence now but we see in your word time and time again how you promised you said this would happen, and it came to pass. And Christmas is a, a reminder of that, that you always accomplish your word. Father, yeah, the, the, yet we, we walk in the brokenness of life. It's not just the world around us that's broken. It's, it's our hearts. We sin. We can't see these things clearly. We walk amidst the pains and struggles of life. And so, Father, we, though we cannot see how you're working Help us trust that you are and that you are good. Help us out of the, the, the cry of faith to say, I believe, but help my unbelief. Father, for those of us here who are believers in you, I pray that you would root us all the more, anchor us in the hope that we have in Christ, that we would live with it, that we would demonstrate with our lives, that it would look very tangible to those around us, that they would see that we have a hope that is not anchored in the circumstances, that people, when they look at our lives and say, well, well those situations, are, those are brutal and so tough, and yet they see a hope in the midst of them, Father, I pray that, those, that we would be anchored in this. And I pray for those who do not know you and are here and are longing and searching for a lasting hope. Father, I pray that you would draw them to yourself and, and show them, cause them to see the glory of Jesus Christ as our only hope. So we thank you and we praise you and we love you that you are a God who is faithful, that you never change, that you are the same yesterday, today, and forevermore, and that that is the hope of our eternities because you, we, we, we know you will continue to love us, you will continue to hold us, you will continue to be faithful, you will continue to bring your word to pass. And so we thank you for this and we praise you and we love you and we pray all of this in the precious name of your son, Jesus. Amen.